Well, Saints, as we get started tonight, we'd like to acknowledge a few things. First, it's nice that the most significant opposition we had this week was not car wrecks or people trying to shoot Elder Charlie. <laughs> it was simply that we're overwhelmed with the glory of the revelation God has given us and trying to figure out how to cram it into two hours. Amen. Secondly, it's not our objective tonight to tell anyone how to think. It's our objective tonight to give you information that we know is biblical so that you can figure out how you should think about it. Amen. That was a, a conversation that we had with Carlos that was a blessing. And uh, he, he's, he's absolutely right about that. So we are clearly racing towards the conclusion of the book of Jeremiah. Last week, we began to work through the prophecy to Babylon. You'll remember that we've been likening this event to a parable since Jeremiah 24. All right, there was a great king with his firstborn son and many servants. The king became displeased that his firstborn son and his servants were disobedient. So the king takes one of the servants and commands the servant to spank his firstborn son. After the son is corrected, the great king then proceeds to discipline all of his servants in a specific order and saves the one who spanked his firstborn son for last. At this point in the book of Jeremiah, the son of the king, the nation of Israel, of course, has been thoroughly disciplined, but has retained every promise concerning their ultimate destiny. That is confirmed for us in Romans, the 11th chapter. Additionally, the great king of the world has proceeded to discipline every other servant in his house. Every other servant being the Gentile world. Until he has come to Babylon last. Yeah. yeah. It was noted, going through each of the ten nations, that the same standards for judgment are used for these Gentile nations as are used with Israel. With the additional emphasis being on how they related to Israel, who served as their example. We want to show you a slide that has Jeremiah 6 compared with Jeremiah 50 to talk about the same standards used with these nations. This is an amazing observation. Let me read Jeremiah 6 to you so we can review. Uh, this is verse 22. Look, an army is coming from the land of the north. A great nation is being stirred up from the ends of the earth. They are armed with bow and spear. They are cruel and show no mercy. They sound like a roaring sea as they ride on their horses. They come like men in battle formation to attack you. O daughter of Zion, we have heard reports about them and our hands hang limp. Anguish has gripped us. Pain like that of a woman in labor. Well, look at Jeremiah 50. Look, an army is coming from the north. A great nation and many kings are being stirred up from the ends of the earth. They are armed with bows and spears. They are cruel and without mercy. You should start seeing the same things here. They sound like the roaring seed as they ride on their horses. They come like men in battle formation to attack you. O daughter of Babylon, oh. the king of Babylon has heard reports about them, and his hands hang limp. Anguish has gripped him like that of a woman in labor. 
So as you guys can see on the slide, a careful comparison of these two passages reveals that they are almost completely identical. There are two notable exceptions that we want to point to. Jeremiah 6, on the left-hand side of the screen, addresses Zion in Jerusalem at the beginning of Jeremiah's writings, while Jeremiah 50 addresses Babylon. The second one may not be quite as obvious. Jeremiah's king is not rebuked, but Babylon's king is rebuked. You see that on the two sides of the slide here? We have a rebuke going to the daughter of Zion, but no king is mentioned. Why might that be, church? Who's the king of Israel? Come on. Jesus. All right, we're going to do this again because we're going to have a great Come on. night together. Who is the God and king of Israel? Jesus! Jesus is not rebuked, but there is a king over Babylon that is rebuked. So Israel's problem is when they act like they have no king. They say their hands hung them. Babylon's problem is that they have the wrong king, and that's being addressed here. Look, the book of Jeremiah goes through not only prophecies to Israel, because the house of God is corrected first, but also ten Gentile kingdoms that surround Israel. We want to remind you of those Gentile nations one last time. We went through Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, which is Syria, Kedar, Hezor, Elam, and now we've come to Babylon. When you are looking at biblical prophecy, avoid putting America in the center of the map. And instead, think like the Middle Eastern prophets do about the geography surrounding Israel. As we begin to engage with Jeremiah 50 last week, we started to notice that Babylon appears consistently in the Bible from Genesis 10 all the way through Revelation 18. The point of Babylon's consistent portrayal can be inferred from Genesis 11, and this is a major theme surrounding Babylon. I want to show you a Hebrew wordplay out of Genesis 11.9. It says, that is why it was called Babel, the city, because there the Lord confused, or in Hebrew, Balal, you hear Babel, Balal, confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So look at that bullet point there at the bottom of the slide. This was done intentionally, speaking about the Hebrew wordplay here in this passage. It was intentionally done to emphasize Babylon as the epitome of human pride and confusion yeah. in the relationship between God and humans. And this was done from the onset of the biblical narrative. We're talking about as early as Genesis 11 here. The biblical narrative describes Babylon in contrast with Jerusalem, juxtaposed with each other from the beginning of the story all the way through the Bible to the end of the story. We have a slide, another slide, and this slide contrasts Babylon and Jerusalem. So under Babylon, it says, from Genesis 11 forward in the biblical text, Babylon is always presented as rising in rebellion and confusion. This is what happened in the plain of Shinar in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. It began to rise up to the heavens, and it got confused. Now Jerusalem, in the word of God, 
is portrayed all throughout, but especially in Revelation 3.12, Revelation 21, verse 2, and Revelation 21, verse 10, as coming down out of heaven. Are you guys familiar with that language in Revelation? And then Jerusalem began to come down to the earth. So we decided to avoid the quagmire of speculation and extra-biblical conjecture surrounding Nimrod's role in the events of Genesis 11. But we did highlight the numerous ties between both him and Babylon in Genesis 6. We have a slide for you. The Nimrod connection becomes somewhat sensational in part because the Septuagint refers to him as gigas or giant or not my people. Leaving room for a association. <laughs> Babylon's own historical texts and Genesis 6 events contain numerous circumstantial links. You can find this in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a story about a demigod of superhuman strength that closely parallels some of, gen- of the Genesis accounts, but perverts the truth to emphasize false deities. The Enuma Eilish is a story that parallels the Genesis flood story, but emphasizes the supremacy of of the Babylonian god Marduk. Yuck. <laughs> the Anunnaki, which is just a fun word to say, are the ba- are Babylonian deities, which obvious pa- has obvious parallels to the events of Genesis six. And the word Babylon in the Akkadian language is translated "gate of the gods." Was wow. that new to some people? Yeah. 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 Crazy. According to the Lexham uh, Bible Dictionary, is where we got that definition. So as we stated earlier, instead of focusing on those things as intriguing as they are, we tried to stay focused on the biblical connections that are specified in the text itself. Our next slide will recap some of the things we pointed out. So this is part of Rashi's commentary on Genesis 10, that he was a mighty hunter in God's face, Mm -hmm. a mighty warrior in God's face. Somebody say in your face. In your face. All who work like this are like Nimrod, men who rebel against their masters. Jeremiah 50, 24 through 25 says, God sets a trap like a hunter for Babylon. Oh, come on. God opens his arsenal or his can like a warrior (laughs) on Babylon. Or keg. Yes. (laughs) And God has work to do in Babylon's face. Yeah. Yeah. So you can clearly see that... The initial elements that begin to form the portrait of Babylon, they remain in the view of the biblical narrative from Genesis through Jeremiah. And truthfully, if you haven't discovered it yet, you'll find they go all the way through the book of Revelation. The Bible's one consistent narrative on that subject. What becomes really neat is in a time when people love to postulate about theories that are outside the text, trying to make connections between Babylonian deities and nearly every other celestial power in the world. I I love a good story about Semiramis as much as anybody else, but it's not in the Bible. We tried to stick strictly to the text because the text itself, it has quite a bit to say without the need for precipitous speculation. So for instance, there are 287 references to Babylon in the Older Testament. That's amazing, isn't it? And there's 82 references to its Chaldean inhabitants. So Babylon is not just prominently featured in the Tanakh, but it's also prevalent in the Brit Kadashah. The Newer Testament opens, it opens the first book with a genealogy 
that utilizes Babylon as a significant marker in time. It's not just low key. In fact, we'll show you a slide referencing in Matthew. We had this slide from the Brit Hadashah, and it, it couldn't be emphasized more tonight, the importance of Babylon in the biblical narrative and in the biblical timeline. In Matthew 1, verse 11, you see, at the time of the exile to Babylon, we don't get 11 verses into the Newer Testament before Babylon is mentioned for the first time. And then it's mentioned again in the very next verse. After the exile to Babylon, almost like it is a very important marker in God's historical timeline. And then again in verse 17 in the first chapter of Matthew. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Clearly, Babylon is an important marker in God's timeline to have mentioned it four times in six verses during the opening chapter to the Newer Testament. Surely any student would have to believe that it is significant that the Messiah of Israel is introduced in conjunction with the copious references to Babylon and the exile. Again, Babylon is the epitome of human pride and confusion from Genesis 11 forward in the Bible, and Babylon is present as the promised problem on the scene prior to Israel's introduction as the solution. This should probably be seen in a... I'm going to learn how to talk here in a minute. (laughs) It should probably be seen in a similar fashion to the darkness being present in Genesis 1 prior to the light. Do you remember that uh, from last week? That darkness was present before the light. Matthew anchors the genealogy of Jesus, who is the Israeli solution to human pride and confusion, to the history of Babylon uh, four times and only six verses. We spent most of last week's session drawing your attention to the pervasive connections between Jeremiah 50 and 51 with Revelation 17 and 18. It should be clear to you, after hearing that two-hour teaching, that the book of Revelation is an expansion of what Jeremiah had already written. This makes perfect sense when you consider that John, who wrote Revelation, had been studying Jeremiah his entire life. Come on. So we want to encourage you to look back over your notes in the years to come so that you can develop an appreciation for the continuity of Scripture. And the progressive revelation that's displayed through the centuries as anointed men built on each other's work. I'd like to show you a slide to illustrate that. We've already covered Isaiah 13. We've covered Habakkuk 1 and 2, Jeremiah 50, and tonight you'll hear 51. A survey of the book of Daniel builds on those things, and it brings uh, to the pinnacle or culmination in Revelation 17, 18, and 19. So starting with Isaiah, in Isaiah 13, we read this already last week. Isaiah foresaw that God would use Babylon as a tool. That's amazing, right? Before Babylon was ever used, Isaiah foresaw it. And they were a tool to discipline Israel. But also, he said that they would be overthrown by God. Isaiah's prophecy extends way, way beyond any historical event that has already occurred, and it points to the events of Revelation 18. Now, in light of that, think about Habakkuk for a moment. Habakkuk foresaw that God would use Babylon as a tool to discipline Israel. 
said that they would be exposed by God and have to drink a cup from the Lord's hand that would cover them in disgrace. Habakkuk's prophecy extends way beyond any historical event that has already occurred. And it points us to the events of Revelation 14 <coughs> and 16. Yeah. Now, Jeremiah foresaw that God would use Babylon as a tool to discipline Israel, but also said they would be overthrown by God and become uninhabitable forever. How long? Forever. <coughs> Jeremiah's prophecy extends way beyond any historical event that has already occurred and points to the events of Revelation 17, 18, and 19. Now Daniel had the benefit of reading these works and living through the historical transition between Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire. He was well aware that the criteria outlined by his predecessors was not fulfilled in his own time. Daniel recorded the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 as a warning to future powers of Babylon. He concluded that chapter with Nebuchadnezzar's very own words. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow. If you haven't picked up on it yet, moving from the left side of that screen to the right, we're moving forward, just like a timeline. And every man was benefited by the work that came before him. So the Apostle John, he read these prophets his entire life. And he received the revelation of Jesus Christ while he's on the Isle of Patmos. John then wrote about the ultimate fulfillment of all that the prophets had written concerning what he called Babylon the Great and Mystery Babylon when he wrote the Revelation. This is presented as the climax of God's plan. It's very important that we not make a starting line a finish line. Yeah. And Christians have a terrible habit of doing that. This is the culmination of all, and if it had happened prior to John's time, he would have said so. Right. Yeah. One of the New Testament writers would have said so. Never is Babylon presented as fallen. Always in the Bible, it's presented as a future event. So listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote on that concept. This is Romans 9, 22 through 24. He says, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath, and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath. Babylon! Prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? Israel! Whom he prepared in advance for glory. Amen. Even us, whom he also called Jews, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Yeah. See, this would mean that from Genesis 10, all the way to Revelation 19, God was demonstrating his patience toward Babylon the Great wow. so that Israel could be prepared for the glorious culmination of their everlasting covenant. Oh. Now, it was not only for the Jews to whom the covenant is addressed, but it is also for Gentile nations who bound themselves to Israel's God. Okay, okay, okay. My brothers and sisters, just so that we cannot possibly miss this point before we begin tonight, let's read Jeremiah 50, 1 through 5 together, concerning Babylon and the land of the Babylonians. It says this, 
This is the word the Lord spoke through Jeremiah the prophet concerning Babylon and the land of the Babylonians. Announce and proclaim among the nations. Lift up a banner and proclaim it. Keep nothing back, but say, Babylon will be captured. Bell will be put to shame. Amen. Marduk filled with terror. Yeah. Her images will be put to shame and her idols filled with terror. A nation from the north will attack her and lay waste her land. No one will live in it. Both men and animals will flee away. In those days at that time, declares wow. the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah together will go in tears to seek the Lord their God. They will ask the way to Zion and turn their faces toward it. They will come and bind themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. Everlasting covenantal language in Jeremiah 51 through 5. So let's point out the obvious from the beginning. This whole prophecy and the fulfilling events are aimed at the shame of Bel and the terror of Marduk. During the time that this uh, happens, Israel, meaning Judah, together with Israel, must be bound to the Lord with an everlasting covenant. But we'll come back to that later. <laughs> Here are four historical reasons that this prophecy is yet to be fulfilled. So number one, the Medes slash Persian Empire is located east of Babylon, not north, not even close. <laughs> number two. The city was not laid waste or left uninhabited. Daniel stayed in it and served in the government. Just a little surveying of Daniel 5, chapter 6, will clearly illustrate to you that life is still ongoing almost as normal. Yeah. Number three, no one fled the city, which again is attested to in Daniel. When the Medes and Persians took over, it was a coup, not a destruction. Again, Daniel 5, all the way through 9, will illustrate this. Our fourth, the new covenant was not enacted or completed during those historical events. We just read the passage that said, in those days and at that time, the everlasting covenant would come to pass. So those are four historical reasons that you know that it did not occur under the Medo-Persians. Let's look at what the text does outline must happen according to the first five verses. Number one, it must be a nation to their north. That is not figurative language. It's not based on the geography of Israel needing an invasion from the north because we're not talking about Israel. We're talking about Babylon being invaded from the north. Number two, no one, somebody say no one, no one. will live in Babylon afterward. That will become even more clear as we go through the evening. Number three, you're going to see men and animals all fleeing from Babylon. Survey the book of Daniel. That did not happen, yeah. but it must happen. Number four is where all of the fun is, though. In those days and at that time, God makes an everlasting covenant with his people, and they bind themselves to him. Amen. So the fourth item is one that almost all Christians fail to understand. Mm. You see, it is the same covenant as Jeremiah 31, 31 presents. Yeah. And we see it here again in Jeremiah 50. You remember what did we spent five weeks on the book of consolation? Yeah. This is what it's talking about. 
So we should pay careful attention to the specifics. Namely, Israel and Judah will come together. They will no longer be two separate entities. They will be together as one. And they will tearfully seek the Lord. Number three, they will bind themselves to the Lord. And number four, the covenant will be everlasting. There will be no end to it. Come on now. We're not going to go back through every single identifier associated with the newer covenant from Jeremiah 30 and 31 because if we did that, we would need an unlimited amount of time. Yeah. But we do have a slide to show yeah. you that should refresh your memory a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pastor Nick made that slide. So we wanted to articulate eight, just eight main points from the slide to refresh your memory a little bit. Firstly, a new thing being planted. Salvation and deliverance would come to Israel in the newer covenant. Secondly, in the newer covenant, you will see the destruction of Israel's destroyers. We will see certainty of the reunification of both houses of Israel and Judah. Amen. There will be the elimination of Israel's rival lovers. Yeah. Get out. The pierced one will speak to a penitent remnant of Israel. Inconsolable Rachel will be rewarded at this time. The time of Jacob's trouble will precede the salvation of Israel. Come on. And finally, a coming storm will happen in order to protect and deliver Israel. So as we pointed out in our last session, there are two main reasons that Christians miss these things. First, we have become arrogant and have forgotten that all these promises applied to the nation of Israel before they can be applied to the Gentile believer. Yes. Yeah. And secondly, we have failed to understand the concept of Goel. Oh, we have come a slide on. for that? Come on. Yeah. So this is Strong's 1350 Goel. It means to redeem, to deliver, and avenge, to act as a kinsman. Thus, the kinsman redeemer was responsible for preserving the integrity, the life, property, and family name. Family name! Family name of his close relative for the executing for executing justice upon his murderer. Yeah, hmm. that's good. So saints, as you consider this, to start with, no one should miss the word kinsman. Yeah. Okay? Contemplate this for a moment. This is not a word that is used in English very often any longer. When you hear the word kinsman, you must think biological, not mythical, biological family <coughs> member who has a familial responsibility to the other members of his own family. Most believers, when you think of a kinsman redeemer, are only concerned with the role of a kinsman redeemer as exemplified in the story of Boaz and Ruth. That's what comes to mind. It's usually the only thing a Christian can recall regarding the term. However, the term is also rightly translated, same word, avenger of blood. And it appears throughout Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and 1 Samuel. Translators are forced in English to translate it as either redeemer or avenger. But in Hebrew, the concepts are so linked that they cannot be separate and are always the same. 
The word implies both actions in every instance. What this reveals is Israel as a nation in the Bible is called the son of God. In a biblical sense, Israel is God's firstborn, his family. So he is their redeemer and he is by nature their avenger. He cannot be one without being the other. Jesus is the kinsman, redeemer, or avenger of Israel's blood. That is a biblical concept that is more sure than the concept of a trinity. It's much easier to prove biblically. So take a look at this word in two passages in Jeremiah. So this is the usage of Goel just in Jeremiah. And we have a slide for you. Israel's kinsman, redeemer. In Jeremiah 31, which is the book of consolation and the home of the new covenant that we have studied, verse 11 says, For the Lord will ransom, the Lord will goel Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds, They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Sounds like a very familiar passage at the end of the Bible. But if you look at it in Jeremiah 50, we studied this last week. It's about the destruction of Babylon and the fulfillment of the new covenant. Verse 34 uses the same word. It says, yet their goel, yet their redeemer is strong. The Lord Almighty is his name. Now look what he's doing. He will vigorously defend their cause. Vigorous! So that he may bring rest to their land, but unrest to those who live in Babylon. Wow. Okay, so consider both of these passages side by side for a moment. In both of them, we have the Hebrew word goel being used, meaning that the biological family member of Israel will both avenge his family and he's going to redeem his family. Understanding this primary role of Jesus as the kinsman redeemer or as the avenger of Israel causes us to understand revelation in the way that the authors actually intended revelation to be understood. The goal is the avenging and the redemption of Israel that will lead them in a restored state with no more sorrow because their enemies have been avenged and put down. So we have another slide for you from Jeremiah 31 and showing you how it connects to Revelation 21. Let's review Jeremiah 31. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil. The young of the flocks and herds, they will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Say sorrow no more. Sorrow Sorrow no more! So now look at Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. And uh, God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. 
Death, mourning, crying, pain, is that sorrow? Oh, yeah. For the old order of things has passed away. The point grows in increasing clarity if you continue reading into Revelation 22. Notice that Jerusalem is indeed described as a well-watered garden. However, tonight this is beyond our scope during this introduction to our text. (laughs) Lastly, notice how the heavens rejoice after the fall of Babylon and the specific words that are used in Revelation 19, 1 through 2. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great whore who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. All right, so as we begin Jeremiah 51, remember that from Genesis 10 through the book of Revelation, Babylon is set in contrast with Jerusalem. Furthermore, the kinsman redeemer of Israel is coming to both redeem and avenge his family, Israel. Understanding the kinsman redeemer, or you can say the kinsman avenger because they're the same thing, is key to understanding both Jeremiah 50 and 51 and the book of Revelation. The next time you read Revelation 6, by the way, with the kinsman concept in mind, it will make more sense to you. The martyrs are crying out under the altar. How long until you avenge our blood? They are presumed to be first and foremost Jewish believers. God has borne with great patience the object of his wrath in order to have time to show mercy to Israel. But the day of vengeance has come and the kinsman has arrived. On that note, Do we have a mighty man of God who is willing to stand up and pray to prepare us for Jeremiah 51 tonight? Mighty God, open (laughs) our eyes that we will receive the revelation that you have for us tonight. Father, we want to behold your kingdom as it is, mighty God. So we say open our eyes, God, that we would see the wonderful things in your law, Father. Open our eyes, God, that we would see your kingdom stand accomplished in our time and in our day. Lord, we look at your word. Lord, let it impact us, Lord. Let it move us, Father. Let us see your word the way you intended us to, Father. And let us exalt your name as we carry out in our practical days. In the name of Jesus, we pray. As, as Justin gets ready to begin reading the text, we'll go through it together. But we've already thrown a lot at you. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. yes. Let's grab hold of something together so that you can't miss it. Number one, the primary qualification for a kinsman redeemer is that he's kin. Now, you've probably only heard a hillbilly say that word. Is she kin to you, boy? Arkansas. It has to be a biological family member, period. The second requirement is that he fulfill to his own family the promise that an avenger and a redeemer fulfills scripturally, which is the setting right of all blood that was shed in your family. 
If you have that in mind, you will begin to wrap your mind around the connections between Jeremiah 50 and 51 and the entire book of Revelation, and you'll start to see it. And you'll start to also appreciate that Christians have so underemphasized this that it has made way for an overly allegory, uh, bigger allegory than we intended regarding what Israel is, what the church is, and what the bride is. And this has made way for the most grotesque errors in scriptural interpretation that the world has ever seen. You will be well prepared to understand these things if you grab hold of what a goel actually is. Amen. Amen. So we started out on the right foot this morning. Are you guys ready to get into Jeremiah 51? Okay, Linton, if you would read verse 1, and we're going to stop you right after verse 1 and dive right in together. This is what the Lord says. See, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon and the people of Lid Kamai. Okay. The people of Lev Kamai. Do you guys have a footnote in your Bibles at Lev Kamai? Yes. I know that you do. This, this. Because we checked. <laughs> this verse contains that footnote, and it's a well-known cryptogram for Babylon. Now, this is well known among scholars, and in fact, we have already gone over this in our Jeremiah study together. So we wanted tonight. To translate this phrase literally. No cryptograms, just literal <laughs> definitions. And we believe that for our night tonight, this is going to set our tone appropriately. Lev Kamai, on this slide that we have here, it means something. Look at this. Wow. The heart of mine adversaries. The heart of my adversaries. Babylon, Lev Kamai. It also can mean the heart of those who rise up against me. Wow. So remember that in their own language, Babylon means gate of the gods. But God calls them the heart of their adversaries. <laughs> so Babylon is the heart of God's adversaries and the self-proclaimed gate of the gods. Yeah, they say we're the, we're the gate, gate of the gods. gods. This should draw your attention to the celestial rebellion that goes beyond the scope of the activities of Nebuchadnezzar there. There might be something else going on. In summation, it is right to say that Babylon represents all that would rise up against God, whether earthly or celestial, or cause pride and confusion in the relationship between man and God. This is expressed in Revelation 17, verse 5, by the title and description of Babylon. Mm. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. The mother. The correlation is an easy one to see. The heart of the adversary is essentially the same as the mother of abominations. If these verses had been fulfilled in Jeremiah's day, then there would have been no need to restate them in Revelation. But Jeremiah was pointing to events Beyond Medo-Persia. He was saying, way out there, there is a culmination point, a mother of all prostitutes. Let's pick up in verse 2. I will send foreigners to Babylon to winnow her and to devastate her land. They will oppose her on every side in the day of her disaster. Here we're describing Babylon being winnowed. 
But you need to remember that Israel was being winnowed by every historical chastisement <laughs> ranging from Egypt all the way through John the Baptist in Matthew 3.12. This is done in advance of what is going to happen to Babylon. And it's done in advance for the purpose of Israel being formed into the likeness and nation of God. However, Babylon is not going to be winnowed as in being disciplined for a son, as a son. Instead, the winnowing that is presented for Babylon is described in terms of total and permanent destruction. Perhaps there's a takeaway for us that is expressed in Paul's warning to a group of believers, somebody say believers, believers. in the Corinthian church. So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight says, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. The 2021 NIV actually says, check yourself or you'll wreck yourself. <laughs> Maybe not, but it probably will. Verse 30 says, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But here's the key. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Come on now. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with Babylon or the world. You see the difference between those called to be a prince of God, with God, or Israel, and those who are burned with eternal fire has very little to do with the presence of sin or guilt, because everybody has that, and everything to do with how each group responds to the discipline of the Lord. Oh, that's a good word. You see... Israel was being winnowed along the way, but they did not have to suffer that final destruction. Babylon did. Repentance makes perfection possible, and Babylon could not do that. Stubbornness makes eternal judgment certain, though. Oh, it's better to judge ourselves along the way. Maybe we should say that one more time. Yes. Yes. Repentance makes Perfection possible. Yes. Stubbornness makes eternal judgment certain. Maybe this is why the first red words in most Bibles say repent. (laughs) All right, Linton. Verses 3 through 5. Let not the archer string his bow, nor let him put on his armor. Do not spare her young men. Completely destroy her armies. They will fall down slain in Babylon. Fatally wounded in her streets. For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken. Have what? Have Uh, not been forsaken. Praise God. By their God, the Lord Almighty. Though their land is full of guilt before the Holy One of Israel. Though their land is full of guilt, they have not been forsaken by their God. Understand the point of this verse. God is acknowledging that Israel is indeed guilty. And, 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 that's an important and there. Yeah. He's acknowledging that they are not forsaken. Wow. Right. Come on. Amen. I'm going to read Ezekiel 36 to you, verses 22 through 23. Tune your ears in to what the prophet is speaking. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this 
this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. His name is upon his people. His testimony is upon them. And for the sake of his name, he's going to be doing these things, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord. When I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Listen, this has everything to do with God having made a promise and him demonstrating his ability to perform that promise. Amen. He will both avenge and redeem Israel. He is the Goel. Israel is transformed through discipline and Babylon will be destroyed by it. Why don't we get verse six? Flee from Babylon. Run for your lives. Run! Run to the hills. Do not be destroyed because of her sins. It is time for the Lord's vengeance. He will pay her what she deserves. Saints, we did this many, many times in our last session. <laughs> we did. And we're going to do it many more times tonight. Come on! Oh, yeah! Verse 6 is a repeating refrain throughout the Bible. Babylon has been in rebellion and has encouraged others in rebellion since the Tower of Babel. Revelation 18.4 says, Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. You know, I don't have any personal experience with this, but having (laughs) spent some time with a few of you, this is what a bartender might call the final call. (laughs) But the truth is that this has been happening in a repeated fashion throughout the ages. The cry going out, come out of her, my people. Paul actually said it in 2 Corinthians 6.17 to Christians. Therefore, come out from them and be separate because the call of God is for his children to separate themselves from this wicked spiritual disease that has always been associated with Babylon. Before we leave verse six tonight, we want you to notice that it specifically says it is time. For the Lord's vengeance. Let that settle on you for a minute. This should remind you of Isaiah 61. So Isaiah 61 verse 2 through 3. The famous passage that Jesus quotes. It says in verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. And provide for those who grieve in Scandinavia. No! In Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They, Zion, will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. You see, you will remember that our Lord Jesus quoted the first half of this verse in his own hometown. He quoted this. He read it from the scroll. 
But he did not at that time proclaim the time of vengeance. Yeah. He stops just sort of saying that yeah. in the middle of a verse. Yeah. And then he sits down. And the reason behind that is that this is because the kinsman redeemer has two roles. Yeah. You see, in that timing, Jesus Ooh. was redeeming Israel. He's actually announcing its redemption, not doing it. But Jesus came to redeem, and he also came to avenge. You see, the first coming of Jesus was about the identification of the Redeemer, but he will both perform both roles in his second advent. Look, we're going to pause here for just a second as Nick prepares to pick up. This is another huge misnomer. It was not all done in Jesus' first coming. In fact, it was barely begun. This was about Israel being able to identify their kinsman redeemer. Yeah. It's why the book of John opens with he came to his own yeah. and his own received him not. It is the proof that he is the kinsman redeemer, but we do not actually see the role being performed until we get to the wedding of the lamb yeah. in Revelation 19. Yes. Misunderstanding this has caused you to think that it's done when it has barely begun. Right. Wow. So verse 7, as we read it, listen for some connections that we're going to make in Revelation as we read verse 7 of Jeremiah 51. Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore, they have now gone mad. Mm. She got you drunk, but not on lovely lady lumps. (laughs) (laughs) Check it out. Revelation 14.8. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. How clear is that connection? This is also restated in Revelation 18.3 as well. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. And the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Babylon's great sin is adultery, which the Bible defines as idolatry. She not only did this, but also encouraged the whole world to do it along with her. Like we said earlier, this whole thing's been going on all the way since Genesis 11. Verse 8, listen. Babylon will suddenly fall wail over her, get balm for her pain, perhaps she can be healed. So this sentiment is expressed in the actions of the merchants in the book of Revelation. This is Revelation 18, 11 through 15. The merchants of the earth will boo-hoo over her. They'll wail! And they will mourn because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes no more. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls. Can you tell we have a good time doing this? Yeah. Fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth. Every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice and of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages. And bodies of the souls of men. Verse 14. They will say, The fruit you long for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished. 
never to be recovered. Never. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth uh, from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment, and they will weep and mourn. They will well. Idolatry is never about pure deception. It always involves secondary gain. You're deceived because you want to be. So idolatry is never about pure deception. It always involves secondary gain. These merchants and Babylon herself are willfully deceived because of what they can get in return for their idolatry. In other words, allegiance with Babylon is not just about accepting idolatry. The reason people accept the idolatry is because of what they get in return. Think about that when you think about the mark of the beast. Now, on a similar subject, idolatry is always related to adultery in the word because there's something that you want that causes you to violate a covenant, which requires that you have one. I wonder why it's necessary to say, come out of her, my people. It's interesting how the Lord's brought us to these crossroads. Why don't we get verse 9 and Linton, I'm going to interrupt you as soon as you get part A. In verse 9, it's still the merchants speaking. It's still those that are weeping and wailing because the whore has fallen. We would have healed Babylon, but she cannot be healed. We would have healed her, but she could not be. Both in Jeremiah and in an expanded version in Revelation, you can see that the merchants of the earth would love to resurrect her if it could. But God ensured that her destruction was a final one. That theme will build all the way through 51, and it is not possible that that happened under the Medo-Persian Empire. Get part B. Let us leave her and each go to his own land. Ah. For her judgment reaches to the skies. It rises as high as the clouds. Mm. Does that strike a bell for anybody? What could we be talking about? Maybe forever and ever rising. Those of you that love Netflix and binge here and there might be familiar with the concept of an origin story. Look at the wording in the NASB. This is Jeremiah 51.9 in the NASB. We applied healing to Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her and let us each go to his own country, for her judgment has reached to heaven and... Towers up to the very skies. Did you catch it? Towers up to the very skies. Like Babylon has been in rebellion to God since the Tower of Babel. Babylon represents the epitome of pride and confusion that results from rebellion to God. And as Judah pointed out, that rebellion to God is usually... Let me just say it rightly, is always based on secondary gain. It's not just a misunderstanding. It's because there's something in it for you. That's been true from Genesis 11 all the way through the present. People that turn away from the truth do it because of what they get from it. And they would resurrect Babylon again and again and again if it kept making them rich, comfortable, fat, or happy. So God is going to put it to death forever. You'll see this exact same language again as we get to verse 53. Because God doesn't want you to miss the connections between Genesis 10 and 11 and where we're at in Jeremiah tonight. 
All right, for now, catch verse 10. The Lord has vindicated us. Come, let us tell in Zion what the Lord our God Come has done. The Lord has vindicated us. You see, this concept of vindication is the work of the kinsman redeemer, the kinsman avenger. And look what Revelation 14 says about it. Revelation 14, 1 through 3. <laughs> to understand vindication, roll back to the day that you got born again. How many of you stood up from that altar or wherever you were and said, I feel vindicated? That word never came to your mind. Nope. You felt saved. You felt undeserving. Vindication is after you've been made right with God, you have been abused. And God has shown up and punished your abuser. What is being said here is not just they're saved. It's both halves of the Goel's role. They have been saved and avenged. Thus, Zion is vindicated. And it's interesting to see right in this story about the destruction of Babylon. Israel is saying that the Lord is vindicating them at that moment. Just like Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion. Where? Mount Zion. In Jerusalem. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Come on. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. Wow. And they sang a new song before the Dude. throne. And before the four living creatures and the elders, no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed Whoa. from the earth. Are those Jehovah's Witnesses? No, they're Mormons. <laughs> These are from the 12 tribes of Israel. Amen. And we keep pointing to you the Israeli-centric nature of the Bible for this very specific reason. Revelation 7 identifies these 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. None are lost, none are Mormons. While many nations will be before the throne of God, the only nation that is named in the book of Revelation with named members and specific numbers given is Israel. They're the only ones named. This story is about their kinsman redeemer, their kinsman avenger, their family from their own line, named from the family name. And you got to be included in it. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Verse 11 through 12, these verses are going to show us more about that kinsman redeemer and what he is going to do. Sharpen the arrows. Take up the shield. The Lord has stirred up the kings of the Medes because of his purpose, because his purpose is to destroy Babylon. Mm. The Lord will take vengeance, vengeance for his temple. Wow. Lift up a banner against the walls of Babylon. Reinforce the guards. Station the watchmen. Prepare an ambush. The Lord will carry out his purpose, his decree against the people of Babylon. Now, it says the Lord has stirred up the kings of the Medes. Did the Medes come? Yes. 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 Did the Medo-Persian Empire come? Yes. Yes. They absolutely did come. And that event may have forecasted God's purpose, but it did not achieve its ultimate objective. Yeah. That fact will become abundantly clear as we continue tonight, if it isn't already. Look at the next verse, so then, and compare it with the fulfillment of God's purpose 
in Revelation. Look at verse 13. You who live by many waters and are rich in treasures, your end has come. The time for you to be cut off. So you should start hearing language that's familiar in different areas of scripture. Listen to Revelation 17 verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. Wow. So the fall of Babylon is forecasted in the Newer Testament, which is 500 years after the time of Jeremiah. Nowhere in the Newer Testament is the fall of Babylon referred to as having already happened. Mm. That is because the writers understood Jeremiah to be speaking about events that extended beyond the Medo-Persian Empire. That's right. Come on. Let's go ahead and get verse 14. The Lord Almighty has sworn by himself, I will surely fill you with men, as with a swarm of locusts, and they will shout in triumph over you. He made the earth by his power. He founded the worlds by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. Pause for a second, Linton. Is that not vaguely reminiscent of Job? Mm -hmm. A description of his awe-inspiring power? Keep going. He found, when he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Every man is senseless and without knowledge. Mm. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. His images are fraud, are a fraud. They have no breath in them. The creator is taking issue with the epitome of pride mm. and confusion, the Babylonian worship of images, teachings, and idols that they teach others to do. There is only one thing that offends our God more than this kind of idolatry. I wonder if you know what it is. It's the oppression of the object of his affections. The apple of his eye, the bride that is Israel and none other. Look at how this continues. Pick up in verse 18. They are workers, the objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. Uh, I wish we had the time to explain to you all of the ways that this passage is a polemic against the gods of Babylon. Maybe the best way to do it is to tell you that everything that God says about himself in verses 14 through 16, everything that he ascribes to himself are characteristics that Babylonians believed belong to their God. (laughs) So let me just put it bluntly for you. Yahweh is openly mocking and making fun of them (laughs) and at the same time calling them worthless. And remember, Jeremiah is writing this down for Babylon's benefit just so that they don't miss it. Yeah, he's going to compare himself in verse 19. Listen to this. He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these, for he is the maker of all things. All things. Including the tribe of his inheritance. Man, including the tribe. The Lord Almighty is his name. You see, there is a natural contrast being set up here between the nation of Israel and Babylon. You will remember that Israel is the inheritance of the Lord, while Babylon is not. And God is making sure the Babylonians know that. He's saying, they are the tribe of my inheritance. Now, we're going to read a few scriptures to you that are going to seem simple, but they are so often forgotten when we're studying these themes. Exodus 19, 5 through 6 says, "Uh, To Israel, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my 
treasured possession. Come on. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. You may right, rightly spiritualize this, and oftentimes we do. We, we talk about us being a priesthood and holy nation. We can do that, but never forget that the author and the audience only had Israel in view. Yeah. Only Israel. How about Deuteronomy 4.20? But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance, as you now are. Oh, yeah. Notice that from the time of the Exodus, Israel is said to be the inheritance, yeah. of, inter, inheritance of the Lord. Speaking in the present tense, not even in the future. That is a fact that never changes. It never will. Psalm 28 verse 9 says, save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. forever. Peyton, I think we have a slide. Oh, we have facets. a slide. These are the four facets of this verse, and it is beautiful. The first one is Israel will be saved as a people. Israel will be blessed as his inheritance. The Lord is the shepherd of Israel. The Lord will carry them forever. Now, regarding the fourth point, this is wedding language. Yeah. A bride is carried across the threshold. So it is completely within the scope of biblical imagery to think of Israel as the bride and Babylon as the prostitute, oh, as the Lord. book of Revelation vividly portrays. Mm. This kind of contrast permeates both Jeremiah and the book of Revelation. True. Now, as we pick up in verse 20, remember that Israel is the entity being spoken to. Yeah. You are my war club, my weapons for battle. With you, I shatter nations. With you, I destroy kingdoms. With you, I shatter horse and rider. With you, I shatter chariot and driver. With you, I shatter man and woman. With you, I shatter old man and youth. With you, I shatter young man and maiden. With you, I shatter shepherd and flock. With you, I shatter farmer and oxen. With you, I shatter governors and officials. Now, this is about Israel, about Jacob. But how common is it for Gentiles to reappropriate these verses? Oh, yeah. Like, I've been in charismatic communities a long time. This is like the go-to favorite 18-year-old man verse on his birthday. The Lord says to you, you are my war club. But the proper context is that Israel is the war club. You guys tracking with us for a yeah. minute? It's yeah. prophetic statements about Israel's future. They will be led by their kinsman, Redeemer, their kinsman, Avenger, and he's going to use them as a war club in his hands. They will be led into every conceivable victory. Come on. We usually see Israel as the suffering servant who endures correction, which is certainly true. But we often fail to see what this correction accomplishes in them. Come on. Israel becomes the representative of God's standards, both positively and negatively, to the entire world. They are formed by this process into God's priestly nation that we read about earlier. But the nations who do not respond to the invitation, those who don't respond to that call, they are shattered by Israel. Yeah. Hear Matthew 21 on the subject. 
You're ready for it? Yeah. yeah. You're not sleepy, huh? No. Matthew 21, 44. I've heard more ridiculous interpretations of this verse than you can imagine, and some of them came from you. Yeah. He, fall, he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Let me just give you a Peshat understanding of that verse. Whether you fall on the stone or the stone falls on you, the result is exactly the same. The nation of Israel, the king of Israel, whether it's David or Messiah, is this kind of stone. This is a very Hebraic way to say when God sets a purpose, you can fall on it or it can fall on you, but you cannot move him off of his purpose. Yeah. It is a set stone, a rock. Zechariah says exactly that. All right, y'all tracking with us? Yeah. Yeah. Jeremiah says that there is war club. Listen to Zechariah 12, 1 through 3. This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him, declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. You can see that on the news all the time. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. <laughs> so how does Israel become a war club that shatters nations? Well, it's important to grasp the concept that Israel has endured the wrath of God. Yes. Man, isn't that true all throughout history? Yes. But as Israel has endured the wrath of God, Israel's Messiah also endured the wrath of God. But the story doesn't end there. Both the Messiah and the nation are resurrected from the crucifying events. And what happens to the other nations? Well, any nation or member of a nation that does not embrace both Israel's Messiah and Israel's calling will be resurrected, but only for the purpose of eternal judgment. You can see that all throughout history where the wrath of God came against Israel, but somehow they survive and the other nations get destroyed for it. That is how they shatter nations. Before your eyes, I will repay Babylon and all who live in Babylonia for all the wrong they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. Whoa. Babylon is being held accountable for the way that they treated God's inheritance, Israel. Everything that they did in Zion, Babylon is going to get back on their own head. In fact, it's going to be double. Their judgment is going to be by the very hand of God. Genesis 12 actually declares that universal principle. As the Lord is talking to Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And it's still in effect today. Amen. That covenant is still in effect. But what we thought you might find even more interesting is the correlation between verse 24 and the verse in Revelation. Do you want to see it? Yes. Yeah. Do you want to see it? Yes. This is Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye <laughs> will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. 
So Jeremiah said, before your eyes, I will repay Babylon. And Revelation says, look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. It is true that the second advent will be in view of the whole world. But it is before Israeli eyes that Babylon will Come be the oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Only Spencer got it? What's wrong with the rest of you? <laughs> Man, reading Revelation in light of Jeremiah is so fun, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it also makes it clear that the return of Messiah is as a familial avenging redeemer. Amen. And that redeemer comes to save his bride while he also repays Babylon. This is why the nations of the earth are viewed as mourning. The nations will mourn because of what the kinsman redeemer is coming to do. Yes. Verse 25. I am against you, O destroying mountain. You will destroy the whole earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hands against you. Roll, roll you off the cliff. <laughs> Make you a burned out mountain. It's almost like God saying, hey, uh, my bride, watch this, because I'm not just saving you. I, I'm going to do a really good job of avenging you. This is Zion! <laughs> <laughs> yeah! <laughs> so the goal I was getting it right here. <laughs> but we want to draw your attention to mountains. In the Bible, nations are referred to as mountains often. You can see that imagery clearly in Psalm 68 on your own time. But consider, consider Daniel 2 in light of this prophecy against the destroying mountain that is Babylon. This is Daniel 2, verses 44 through 45. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. Wow. That's so, that's so good. <laughs> it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the er interpretation is trustworthy. So the rock that is cut out Daniel's mountain is clearly an Israeli rock. Yeah. Yeah. It's cut from the mountain of Israel, and it is of Israel itself. That rock crushes all of its rivals yeah. and ushers in the kingdom of God. Amen. Come on. Uh, something in you not just scream yes on the inside? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I see women in this room that have been waiting their whole life to be redeemed and avenged by a great prince. Come on. Men that have been dreaming about redeeming their family and defending their family. Oh, yeah. God built you on an inward level to shout hallelujah at the idea of him crushing every other empire so that he might redeem his elect. If you think that John Wick was motivated by the death of his dog, you should see what happens when the kinsman redeemer shows up and his wife's been being abused. Yeah. So the portion of Jeremiah that we are reading is describing Babylon as a mountain, a synonym for a nation, but not one that Messiah proceeds from. Babylon is a destroying mountain, not one who ushers in the kingdom of God. In short, Babylon is the whore 
and Israel is the actual bride, is the import of this narrative. So we're lacing together some concepts, and, and it's important with 44 minutes left in the evening that you are following us here. God is taunting Babylon. He's setting something up. In fact, the entire prophecy is a polemic. And the concept here is, hey, Babylon, you're a destroying mountain. Babylon, there's a different kind of mountain. It's already been spoken about, and it's not you. Hey, Babylon, <laughs> Messiah will not come from you. It's coming. He's coming from only one nation. That's the import of what's being said, and it's about to get crystal clear. Let's pick up in verse 26. No rock will be taken from you for a cornerstone. For a what? Cornerstone. cornerstone. Yeah, Nor any stone for a foundation. For a what? Foundation. foundation. For you will be desolate forever. So you can see that this polemic is being formed. This is a taunt against Babylon, which cannot produce the cornerstone, cannot produce the foundation, cannot produce salvation. What is being contrasted here is that Israel can, and Israel will. So while... Christians sing songs about this concept. They almost never understand them. <laughs> the Apostle Peter used this very imagery when describing Jesus in 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8. It says, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. He's not Babylonian! <laughs> and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe this stone is precious... But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So the point of all this is, is that the tested stone is Jewish, not Babylonian. The precious stone is Jewish, not Babylonian. The cornerstone is Jewish. The foundation stone is Israeli in origin and is not and never will come from Babylon. God is saying, hey, even though you're lifted high and you're destroying my people, my cornerstone is still among those people. Jeremiah is taunting Babylon because although they were used to discipline Israel, Babylon will never, ever produce the Messiah. Moreover, Messiah will come as the kinsman redeemer and avenger to bring about the fall of Babylon. Come on. How much of a pride crusher is that for Babylon? See, we can't miss this in the new covenant. It's not about redemption only. It is also about paying back those who wronged his people. Yeah. That's why the book of Revelation culminates in the fall of Babylon followed by the marriage of the lamb. Yeah. Wow, that is so good. Verse 27, we're going to read together. I want you to pay attention to some of the names that are listed here. Yeah, this is a big one. Lift up a banner in the land. Blow the trumpet among the nations. Prepare the nations for battle against her. Summon against her these kingdoms. Wow, that's pretty incredible. He's going to name three kingdoms that are going to be summoned against her. Ararat, Mini, Ashkenaz. <laughs> Appoint a commander against her. Send up horses like a swarm of locusts. Now, this might not be 
an all-inclusive list of the nations that will come against her, but it's certainly a good start for us. Yeah. You guys know that where Ararat is? Turkey. Oh yeah, it was absorbed by Turkey from Armenia. <laughs> they might be sorry they did that. <laughs> what about Mini and Ashkenaz? Anybody know where those are off the top of your head? Ah oh, man. <laughs> Good thing that we have a map for you guys tonight. It's going to show these three locations. Look at this. So we have Ararat, Ashkenaz, and Mini in a nice little cluster here, right there on the border of Turkey and Iran. Now, if you've been with us for a little while, and you haven't yet understood that Turkey and Iran have very very important roles in the latter days, then this should begin to convince you of their importance. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have time tonight to discuss the Joel 2 language, but we do want you guys to look into it on your own time. Clearly, though, Jeremiah's prophecy goes well beyond any known historical event, and it points to events detailed by the prophets that will culminate <laughs> in the book of Revelation. Hey, can anybody find Chaldea on that map? Can you help me out? Yeah. Well, if you can find the Persian Gulf, Chaldea is at the northern tip of it. What direction is Ararat, Ashkenaz, and many from Chaldea? North. You mean just like Jeremiah said? Yeah. I want to give you a hint. That is not the Medes and the Persians. <laughs> All right, 28 through, wow, we're going to take a big old chunk here and go 28 big one. through 33. Big, big one. Bite. Big bite. Big bite. It's all right, we can do it. We can take a big bite together, can't we? Two yeah. okay. Prepare the nations for battle against her, the kings of the Medes, their governors, and, and all their officials, and all the countries they rule. The land trembles and rides, for the Lord's purposes against Babylon stand. He has more than one? Yeah. <coughs> To lay waste the land of Babylon, so that no one will live there. What? Babylon's warriors have, have stopped fighting. They remain in their strongholds. Their strength is exhausted. They have become like women. Or like Californians. <laughs> mm, her dwellings are set on fire. The bars of her gates are broken. One courier follows another, and messenger follows messenger. To announce to the king of Babylon... That his entire city is captured, the river crossing seas, the marshes set on fire, and the soldiers terrified. This is what the Lord <laughs> Almighty, the God of Israel, says. The daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. Like a what? Like a, like a threshing floor. At the time, it is trampled. The time to harvest her will soon come. The time to harvest her will soon come. Now, the story of Boaz should at least familiarize you with the threshing floor. Yeah. Does anybody remember that? Yes. Yeah. So the kinsman redeemer is on the threshing floor, in this case too, but not just to redeem the bride-to-be. No, in this case, he is there to avenge her as well as marry her. Now, this passage ends with the time to harvest Babylon will so come. In the book of <laughs> Revelation, the time is presented as a single hour. Now, as we go through these passages in Revelation, have that go well, that king, kinsman, redeemer, avenger. If someone, let's, I'll speak to the men in the room who are married. If someone abused your wife, do you think you would wait to get around to avenging? 
No. no. You think you would uh, deliberate, or would you just get to action? Yes. Yes. Here's some of the um, the strong language here, and how God's going to bring down these, this nation. So I'm going to read to you all out of Revelation 18, but I'm going to hit a few verses just to give you a flavor. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power, in one hour your doom has come. Goes on to say, in one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. Moves on. They will throw dust on their heads, and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where are all who had ships on the sea, became rich through her wealth in one hour, she has been brought to ruin. Immediately after these verses, the imagery is going to shift to redemption. We have Babylon being destroyed, and we move into the redemption and marriage imagery that is the other aspect of the kinsman redeemer. Amen. So when you're hearing all of those quotes that came from Revelation 18, and Revelation 19 is rejoicing because the marriage has come. A major element that all Christians are missing in our New Covenant understanding is that the New Covenant is not complete until God has married His people, Israel, and He will not do that until He has destroyed Babylon. Do you see how clear that is? So when you're thinking through the imagery of Ruth and Boaz, it is beautiful. I love to teach on it as much as anybody in the world. I've written about it. I've put audio out about it. I love it. The only thing that would make it better is if Boaz fought for her before he married her. But he didn't have to because he was among his people. If he had to go get Ruth out of Babylon and she was being held captive, then we would have a revelation story there. As it is, we only have half of the story. Look, let's pick up in verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us. He has thrown us into confusion. He has made us an empty jar, like a serpent. Like a what? Like a serpent. He has swallowed us and filled his stomach with our delicacies and then has spewed us out. Did you hear that Nebuchadnezzar is like a serpent in these verses? Yeah. If we had more than 33 minutes, I would read to you Revelation 12 and 13, where the serpent is simply described as a dragon. The LXX actually uses the word dragon in Jeremiah right here. It says Nebuchadnezzar like a dragon. The entire evening could be spent on that correlation alone. We need to keep moving. But you remember in Revelation that a dragon was trying to devour the offspring of a woman. First the woman, then the offspring, then all who were with her. Where did the imagery come from? This verse in Jeremiah. All right, pick up in verse 35. May the violence done to our flesh be upon Babylon. Save the inhabitants of Zion. May our blood be on those who live in Babylonia. What? Says Jerusalem. All right, make no mistake, this is Israel saying this about Babylon. What did they say again? They said, may the violence done to our flesh be upon Babylon. May our blood 
be on those who live in Babylonian. You know, strangely enough, this is the basis for the context of Revelation 6. Revelation 6, verse 9, and notice the similarity. And who's speaking in Revelation 6? Might be Israel. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Wow. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers, Israelis, who were to be killed as they had been, was completed. See, a fellow servant could be a Gentile. But why say fellow servants and brothers? We have a bad habit of reading this in something other than the Peshat. These are Israeli martyrs that we're talking about here in Revelation 6 that are under the altar and crying out. Yeah. You could think about any phrase that these guys who have been killed because of their faith in Jesus the Messiah, but what they're crying out is for their Goel. Yes. They are crying out for vengeance on the enemies that have killed them, and they're actually saying, how much longer do we have to wait for you, Goel, to appear and avenge our blood? See, Christians are so immature about this subject. It's kind of like thinking that a gun is evil because an evil man used a gun. Or that wine is evil because some men use wine in evil ways, even though Jesus made it at a wedding. The fact that you do not take vengeance is a part of the scripture. The other half of that concept is you are leaving room for God to take vengeance. You not doing it is leaving room for God to do it, and nobody exemplifies that better than Israel and a kinsman redeemer. This verse actually finds its fulfillment in Revelation. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because we find God's avengement in Revelation 19 and verse 2. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. Babylon. Listen to this next line. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. The same servants that were crying out finally find their vengeance from God Almighty. Man, that's good. That's going to be a great moment. Yes. 36 through 39. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. See, I will defend your cause and avenge Praise God. The Methodists would have to take that out of their book. I mean, they're uncomfortable even singing about the blood of Jesus. How much more the blood that Jesus sheds. Did you say the pacifists or the Methodists? I I get it confused. They're synonyms. They're both a boycott of Israel. (laughs) I will dry up her sea and make her streams dry. Babylon will be a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, an object of horror and scorn, a place where no one lives. Her people all roar like like young lions. They growl like lion cubs. But while they are aroused, I will set out a feast for them and make them drunk so that 
they shout with laughter, then sleep forever and not awake, declares the Lord. You hear the finality in it? No one lives there. No one. By that, the word means no one. And it says they will sleep forever and not awake. This is not a nap. Daniel 5 and the events surrounding Belteshazzar are foreshadowed, but this cannot be the fulfillment. Why? Because the nation did not sleep forever. Nor was it left uninhabited. Do you guys remember Daniel 5? Daniel 5, Belteshazzar, king of Babylon, is sitting there and he invites everyone over to his place to drink wine with him. And everybody comes. They're drinking out of idolatrous cups and goblets together. They're actually the Lord's cups. Yeah, they belong to the temple and they're drinking and celebrating their idolatry with one another. Did you guys hear verse 39? But while they are aroused, I will set out a feast for them and make them drunk. That's incredible, and it definitely hints at a shadow and type that we find in Daniel chapter 5. But it is not the ultimate fulfillment because the nation of Babylon in the Medo-Persians' time did not sleep forever. I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams and goats. How Shishak will be captured. It's just another word for Babylon. It's another cryptogram that we don't have enough time to explain. The boast of the whole earth sees what a horror Babylon will be among the nations. The sea will rise over Babylon. Its roaring waves will cover her. Her towns will be desolate, a dry and desert land, a land where no one lives through, which, which no man travels. So we're driving the point home that this is permanent destruction. Goel shows up and he absolutely destroys Babylon completely where there is no one living in it. It is completely vacant and that people don't even travel to. Let's just say when God's done with Babylon, it's not going to be any kind of destination for the normal traveler. (laughs) Let's go ahead and pick up in 44. I will punish Bel in Babylon and make him spew out when he is swallowed. The nation will no longer stream to him, and the wall of Babylon will fall. It's not reminiscent of Revelation 12, 13. Earlier we said a serpent, or in the LXX, a dragon. Now we're naming the deity over Babylon. Historically, this is Babylon that swallowed Jerusalem, then tried to swallow Messiah, then the offspring of Messiah. Mm-hmm. Catching that Revelation 12 and 13 train? The dragon tries to swallow the woman and her offspring. I'm just going to go ahead and read to you verse 13 of chapter 12. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Suffice it to say that we believe a stronger grasp of Jeremiah is needed to properly interpret the events going on in Revelation. Can you all see that? Yeah. 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 Hey, Verse 45 is like our favorite refrain in the book of Jeremiah. (laughs) Come out of her, my people. Run for your lives. Run! Run Run from the fierce anger of the Lord. The repeating refrain is echoed throughout the biblical narrative. It serves as a continual reminder to us in this room. 
We can have nothing to do with Babylon. Yes. We can have nothing to do with the spirit of Babylon. Yes. We can have nothing to do with the activities of Babylon. Yes. Revelation 18.4, one more time. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, yes. so that you will not share in her sins so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up like a Babylonian tower to heaven. And God has remembered her crimes. In fact, he never forgot it. Not from Genesis 11 all the way through Revelation 18. (laughs) All right, pick up in verse 46 and we're going to see more ties. Do not lose heart. Or be afraid when rumors are heard in the land. One rumor comes this year, another. Rumors. 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 Somebody say rumors. Rumors. One rumor comes this year, another the next. Rumors of violence in the land and of a ruler against a ruler. Man, I don't know about you, but this is oddly reminiscent of Matthew 24. Yeah. Must be a coincidence. Yep. And you know, interpreters often read Matthew 24 in the light of newspaper headlines, or we like to sit and talk about Matthew 24 when we're reading our drudge apps. <laughs> but wouldn't it be more prudent to consider Jeremiah 51, 46 when considering the following words? Matthew 24, 6 through 8 says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to, that, see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. If Babylon is still standing, then we have not reached the ends. Not in any century. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Look, time to time we do see these things on the earth, but you know what you don't see? A mystery Babylon who is seducing the people of God and is compiling a list of sins to the heavens that God is about to destroy. What Jesus is saying in context of Jeremiah is to be looking for those things. Did you hear that? Jesus is speaking in the context of Jeremiah. How many of you have read Matthew 24? How many of you have failed to make the connection with Matthew 24 and Jeremiah 51, 46. The reason that we do not understand what is written in the Newer Testament is because we are not properly founded in the Older Testament. But we can cure that, and we're working hard at it. Let's continue our cure in verse 47. When the time will surely come, when I will punish the idols of Babylon. Punish them! Her whole land will be disgraced. In your face! Amen. And her slain will all lie fallen within her. Then heaven and earth and all that is in them will shout for joy over Babylon. Yes. Yeah. Hey, can we have a shout for joy in here? For out of the north, destroyers will attack her, declares the Lord. Now is the time in our study where we turn to Revelation 19 together. And we read it together as a congregation. Did you guys have a good time last week? Yeah. Revelation 19 together? Oh, yeah. yeah. We need to do that again. Yeah. We're going to start out in verse 1. You can read it um, from the screen. It's probably easier. After this, 
I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Shouting! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. His, he has condemned the great prostitute Amen. who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Yeah. Thank you, Goel of Israel. Yes. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, all you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. Yes. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited Amen. to the wedding. Yes. Supper yes. Of the now there's a weird correlation here that we don't have time to teach. But if you've ever read Matthew 22, and we have people invited to a wedding, yeah. and obviously if they're invited, you don't think of them as being the bride. And some are thrown out because they don't have the right kind of clothes. Oh, yeah. You can't come to any other conclusion than those that are invited actually get to join with the bride. Collectively, they make up a bride. Yeah. But there is the bride and then the group that is invited. And among those that are invited, not everybody actually becomes a part of the ceremony because oh. they didn't get ready. Oh. But in Jeremiah, heaven and earth are shouting and rejoicing over Babylon. Wow. So heaven and earth are shouting. We have a slide for you. From this verse, after this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah. And again they shouted, Hallelujah. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, and they cried. Hallelujah! If you read the scripture, apparently after they cried, they say, Amen! Hallelujah! <laughs> then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! Now, you guys have been to LCM weddings, right? Yes! How, there's so much emotion and celebration. Oh, there are yeah. tears. There are shouts of joy. There is rejoicing and praising God. When Babylon is judged, the heavens and the earth both are declaring hallelujah because the wedding has come. That reminds me, Pastor Parsons. There was a wedding here recently. And nobody's ever shown so much affection as Timo did to Pastor Wade's daughter. That's right. <laughs> Well, Pastor Wade, I think we're going to move on to verse 49. <laughs> Babylon must fall because of Israel's slain. All right, you guys beginning to get the picture? Because of Israel's slain. Yeah. See, we're not making this up. The text actually says it. 
The relationship of every nation on earth to God is dependent upon their relationship to his bride, Israel. All right, brother, keep reading. Just as the slain in all the earth have fallen because of Babylon. Keep going. You who have escaped the sword, leave and do not linger. Remember the Lord in a distant land and think on Jerusalem. You can be in any land other than Babylon. Just get out. <laughs> we are disgraced, for we have been insulted, and shame covers our faces, because foreigners have entered the holy places of the Lord's house. Oh, come on. Hit verse 52. But the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish her idols, and throughout her land, the wounded will groan. Before we hit 53, you hear the phrase again? The days are Coming. Come on now. What is connected with the everlasting covenant, with the marriage? It is the destruction of Israel's oppressors, the chief of which is Babylon. Let's get 53 together. Even if Babylon reaches the sky and fortifies her lofty stronghold, I will send destroyers against her, declares the Lord. We told you we were going to have a second reference, and I'm going to read this one to you in the NASB as well. Though Babylon should ascend to the heavens. Yeah. Guys, you remember the plane of Shinar? So that we are not dispersed, we'll build a tower that ascends to the heavens. God is calling out the same spiritual power that he took notice of in Genesis 11 and has never forgotten. Get 54 through 56. The sound of a cry comes from Babylon. The sound of great destruction from the land of the Babylonians. The Lord will destroy Babylon. He will silence her noisy din. Waves of enemies. I look in this passage. We haven't had time to do it, and we still don't tonight. But I just—you should study this in your own time. It's a lot of fun. He tells them that they're little growling lions. Then he says they're aroused, which means exactly what you think that it would mean. And then he calls them a, a, a noisy den. But he's got an answer for them. I mean, for, forgive me, but if this were translated in today's vernacular, it'd say, look, you bunch of horny little growling lions that wanted to do bad things to my bride, I have something for you. Ooh. I mean, that, that is the attitude that this is conveyed. <laughs> Waves of enemies will rage like great waters. The roar of their voices will resound. A destroyer will come to Babylon. Her warriors will be captured. And their bows will be broken. For the Lord is a God of retribution. He will repay in full. Do you catch that? Whatever the retribution is, it comes from the Lord. And it's not a partial payment. It's a full payment. It leaves Babylon totally uninhabited so that people go around it for years. Okay? Revelation 18 verse 5 says, For her sins are piled up to heaven. That's both a reference all the way back to Genesis 11 and a reference to what's happening in Jeremiah's day (laughs) and a reference to the way that it continues to build until the end times. And God has a solution for it. It's verse 6. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Before I read that next part, do you remember last week that the actual cities that he named in Israel meant exactly that? Not Israel, in Babylon. Mm -hmm. Mix her a double portion from her own 
cup. Salvation includes retribution upon those that caused the world to go into error. Mm, If you're uncomfortable with that, then you're uncomfortable with the Bible and you need to grow up. All right, pick up in verse 57. I will make her officials and wise men drunk, her governors, officers, and warriors as well. They will sleep forever and not awake, declares the king. You're going to take a dirt nap. (laughs) Whose name is the Lord Almighty? This is what the Lord Almighty says. Babylon's thick wall will be leveled and her high gates set on fire. The peoples exhaust themselves for nothing. The nation's labor is only fuel for the flame. All right, so we've been saying this all night. This did not happen under the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, you can Google it, you can uh, look on Google Maps, Google Earth, and you can still see those walls of Babylon still there. And people are still living there, and they're trying to make it a tourist destination. So we know that this hasn't happened, but it will when Israel's kinsman redeemer, kinsman avenger, arrives and completes the newer covenant. The idea is that we're looking for that. The whole goal of this is that we should be expecting this to happen, look forward, and not just say it already happened and be done with it. Make it easy. We're supposed to expect these things to happen. Now, it wouldn't be much of a mystery if we were only talking about the physical location of Babylon. Okay? There would be no reason to say Babylon the Great and Mystery Babylon. We're not solving that Bible difficulty for you tonight. You would have to buy us a cigar and maybe a scotch. But... But it is important to recognize that what we are talking about is their final outcome. And it is followed immediately by the marriage of God to one nation, a unified Judah and Israel, never to be separated from the Lord again. I challenge any of you to find a point in history where that has happened. It hasn't happened. All right, guys. We are nearing a close. We're going to read 59, and we're going to read through 63 together. We're going to stop one verse short of the end of this chapter. This is the message Jeremiah gave to the staff officer, Seraiah, son of Neriah, son of Neriah, the son of Masiah. By the way, staff officer is probably not a very good translation there. This dude is the boss. Keep reading. He's got quite a job to do, by the way. When he went to Babylon with Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year of his reign. They're going where? They're going to Babylon together? Wow, okay. I I think he's a little bit more of a boss than a staff officer. Let's hit 60. Jeremiah had written on a scroll about all the disasters that would come upon Babylon, all that had been reported concerning Babylon. He said to Sarah, when you get to Babylon, see that you read all these words aloud. How would you like that job? (laughs) (laughs) Everything that we just read in the last... Uh, eight days together, you take that on a scroll and read it out loud in Babylon 4. <laughs> By the way, I'm staying here. While you're <laughs> hey, do y'all feel for Sarai? Yeah. 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 I mean, do anybody want that job? No. No. You all have that job. Yeah. yeah. Come on. A Jewish king and prophet has given us exactly the same message, and he has told us to proclaim it in the entire world. We have just edited the message to make it one of only salvation. You all have Sarai's job. Good word. Then say, O Lord, 
It will be desolate forever. Just in case they didn't get the message from the huge scroll that he brought with him and read in their presence, <laughs> he's going to put it real plainly for them. No man or animal is going to live in this place, and it's going to be desolate forever, guys. When you finish reading this scroll, tie a stone to it and throw it into the Euphrates. So that you never have to read it a second time to it. <laughs> <laughs> tie a stone to it and throw it in the Euphrates. This should remind all of us of a little passage from Revelation chapter 18 and verse 21. Little known passage. It's going to be our last comparison passage for the evening. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. Now, you, after this, after these last couple weeks, you could never... Look at me or look at you and say, you don't need Jeremiah to understand Revelation. You guys know better than that at this yeah. point. The Gideons didn't even put it in their Bible they handed out to us. <laughs> they obviously thought that you could read through Revelation and cherry pick it and string it together the way that you saw fit. But Jeremiah is the foundation for the book of Revelation. And you guys should be confident yeah. knowing that what is being built in you is laid on the foundation of the prophets that oh, came before. Oh, yeah. Now, I shouldn't have picked on the Gideons, but I'm going to do it a second time just to make sure. <laughs> Handing out a newer testament with Daniel and the Psalms only guarantees that you cannot understand the newer testament that you receive. Right. Can you all see that? Yeah. Yeah. We might as well tear out the book of Revelation, too, because you cannot understand it without Jeremiah. Who decided these things and why? People that only see one part of the Goel's responsibility. People that only care about what happens to them. Wonder how we ended up with a selfish gospel? Well, we, we're pretty far off base when it comes down to it. We don't even understand, I love you church, that we have Soraya's job. It is not just our job to proclaim that we are all saved. It is also our job to proclaim Babylon is going to fall and anybody associated with her will be burned in the fire. And the object of God's affection is one nation on earth and it was a mystery that we could be included yeah. in that promise. And that should make all of us crazy goyim so happy that we get a chance to be a part with God's people, yes. but not without them. Yes. Let's finish verse 64. Then say, So Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster I will bring upon her, and her people will fall. The words of Jeremiah end here. Wow, what a profound statement. The words of Jeremiah. Think of everything he said up to this point. Babylon will fall, will rise no more, will not be inhabited. But these things have not happened. The Goel has not come to redeem his people. How I view this is uh, heavenly R&R. That's what the church needs. That's what we need. I'm not talking about rest and recuperation. I'm talking about an anticipation for heavenly redemption and retribution. Amen. We need to be like Sarai, who's bold enough to go into Babylon and proclaim the words of God because they are sure 
and true. Do you remember in Revelation 19, verse 9, after he had said these things, the angel said, these are the true words of the Lord. You can trust in this. Yeah. You got to love, you've all heard drop, drop the mic moments. I mean, when Pastor Matt is preaching, we have a lot of drop the mic moments. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But you've never seen him take his whole Bible, tie a rope around it, a millstone to the other end and throw it in the river because he's declared all that needs to be declared and now you're responsible. It's not going to happen again. <laughs> Maybe Sunday. We'll see. Guys, I'm going to read to you a slide and recap. But forever the imagery of the word of God should be changed when you're thinking about the collective understanding of Jeremiah. Why the great groom shows up to his wedding drenched in blood? It's because he's to go out. Yeah. yeah. That is our God. So in recap, the attack on Babylon, it will be from a nation or nations to their north. No one will live in Babylon afterward because when the Goel wants to avenge, he makes sure that he finishes the job. Yeah. Men and animals will all flee Babylon. Nothing will want to inhabit it from that point forward. In those days, at that time, an everlasting covenant between Israel and their mighty Redeemer and Avenger will take place. Guys, in our last three minutes, the things that I want to remind you of, we're not reading, come out of here, my people, because we have a pet issue. We're reading it over and over again because the word is declaring it to his people. Do you trust in that Messiah? Do you? Yes! yes then the words of Jeremiah are true for us. We have areas that we must come out of Babylon and been lingering far too long. The second thing that I want to draw your attention to is the conviction of men who carried this word. Yeah. You remember when Jeremiah had an opportunity to take an easy route to Babylon? Yep. To be cared for for the rest of his life? Right. How might these words have been taken if he did that? Guys, firm convictions that are determined in advance are your protection. The things that you pray, preach, and prophesy out of the word of God to others will actually be your protection in moments of weakness yes. because you have backed yourself into a corner that says, I am with Israel and their God, and I will be found no other place. Yeah. We're in the days prior to seeing these events in the generations to come. Yeah. We must solidify convictions like men of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. These are the days we live in. I'd like to take the last minute and 45 seconds as the pastors are getting ready to close our meeting to tell you that Sariah had quite a job. And we have quite a job. Earlier in the book of Jeremiah, he wore a yoke that must have looked a lot like a crossbeam <laughs> that another Jewish man wore. And it sent a message to the whole nation. Uh, actually, the whole world, all of the nation. So you had a Jewish man wearing a crossbeam with a message that went out to the whole world. But at this point in the book, Jeremiah is not taking the message to Babylon. My point is that Jeremiah and Jesus are very similar in this regard. He sends a trusted servant. And all of us are being sent to bring the message, everything that's in the book, not a selective message, not the part that you're comfortable with, not the part that just warms your sweet little heart, the whole message. Amen. And it's supposed to be terrifying. It caused men like Daniel to fall on the ground and collapse under the thought 
of all that this would entail. And angels to have to reach out and strengthen him just so that he could stand. If you haven't been afflicted by the greatness of this message and the greatness of your responsibility, then quite honestly, you've taken Christianity way too lightly. When you engage the word and it engages you and you realize just how much Babylon you've been associated with and how much selective editing of the text you have accepted and propagated, it will cause you to tremble in your soul. All we want to do is get this right. It's true that I'm a Zionist, but that is not what is motivating this. A plain reading of the scripture is motivating this. And for the vast majority of my Christian experience, I've not had an appreciation for the way in which God stays committed to one nation throughout their history and the way he stays committed patiently with the objects of his destruction throughout history but it will reach its climax. We must judge ourselves so that we do not come under judgment. And we have to get the message right. Amen? Amen. Aren't you glad that these men presented this word to us tonight? Yes. Didn't you just catch that you are now responsible for giving that exact same gospel out to others? Come on, Sarias. This is our job. It's one thing to sit back and marvel at someone else presenting what they just did to us. It's another thing for us, each and every one. Everybody say, he's talking to me. He's talking to me. We are each responsible to present the gospel in its fullness so that others may be able to actually see and have the opportunity to have not only a kinsman avenger, but also the kinsman redeemer operate on their behalf. Sydney, would you put up 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one? And pastor said it just here just a few minutes ago. It says this, but if we were more discerning, That's a crappy translation. this is a terrible translation. It's if we would judge ourselves, if we would actually judge ourselves, we would not under, come under the same judgment of the heavens more discerning if I, if I only could understand no no if you actually allowed the word of God to judge you because we have the responsibility of a Soraya that we you think God put you here at LCM so someone else could do it he brought you here so you could do it I look at a man like Ibrahim and I know he's going to do this around the world yes I know it I can feel it in my soul. I know what the Lord is doing in men like Ibrahim and men like Carlos. I know what he's doing when I look at a man like Adam or when I look at a man like Paul. I know that he brought you here. And it's not just the names I mentioned. It's every one of us. It is our job to rightly judge ourselves because of the word and his spirit so that we can rightly present. Isn't that an incredible revelation? He's not just our kinsman redeemer. The word Goel also includes that he is the kinsman avenger. It's time for us. You guys love the word. I mean, who who comes on a Monday night but people like you? And it's still for us to judge ourselves even more discerningly so that God's judgment will not fall upon us. We're more responsible, not less, aren't we? Yes. And you can do this because God is presenting it to you that you may do this with him. Mm. 
You know what, guys? Whenever we're letting his word judge us and giving us his words of what to pronounce, that is the process of being made into the image of God. Amen. It's representing his name rightly. It's gathering those garments that we're supposed to wear as invited guests to the wedding. But when you begin to let the word judge you, it also allows you to trust God's judgments that occur that you don't fully understand. Yeah. Because you understand his character. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read something that's very familiar, but put just a little bit of a new light on it for you that hit me. Put up 1 Peter 2. We'll read verse 23, and hopefully this is not crappy. <laughs> okay. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justice. In this passage, it's speaking of the model of all models. Amen. And that's Jesus. But as I read it, I saw Jeremiah. I saw a man that God is uh, shaping us to be like Amen. and to emulate. In looking at this, the way that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly is that he did not speak of his own judgments. He only spoke of God's judgments. Amen. And as a result, he had insults hurled at him. As a result, he suffered. But yet, as a result, he stood righteous, whole, and justified before God. Amen. Trust the process of God's word judging you so that you can rightly pronounce God's right judgment to others. Amen. There's a verse that I think it's probably some of your favorite verse in the Bible, if I were just to guess. It comes from Romans 1, chapter 16, and we're going to put that on the screen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Amen. Now, the first revelation is that this passage about the gospel was always first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, and you probably never knew that was in there, or you just read over it, right? Look at verse 17 and how this continues. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Okay, we're starting to see a distinction between God's righteousness and so-called righteousness that's found in the world. Next verse. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Why in the world would Paul and his companions who are writing the book of Romans go through this progression? Maybe they were thinking about a Goel who would come to both redeem through the gospel and come for retribution through the gospel of Christ. Now in light of a gospel that preaches those messages, are you ashamed of the gospel tonight? No. We are not ashamed of the gospel because we understand the power and the potential that it has to change and transform lives. Amen. And the only way that it does that is when we grow and mature in our ability 
to represent the gospel according to the way that Jesus Christ himself represented it. That is our challenge. That is our charge tonight. We are growing, church. We are maturing in our representation of how to present our Father and his Son. Before Pastor Parsons prays for us, I just want to take a moment to express my overflowing joy for the families in this room. Amen. Yeah. I remember when Tom and Martha came in, yeah. reminiscing about it just a couple of days ago. Sweet, respectable couple that loved the Lord, even witnessing to one of my friends whom they didn't know was born again. <laughs> you know. Have they not grown in character of convictions? Yes. 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 Amen. I remember when Ray Levixen was a bachelor. (laughs) (laughs) And Rick Lawhon. God has prospered this house. And it's not because of an affluence. It's not because life has been overwhelmingly easy. It's because he's deepening our convictions along the way. And he's ensuring we are able to meet the task. Yeah. We don't have what we need in and of ourselves. But he is making us ready. Every once in a while we take a little bigger leap than we have in previous months, but it's because we have a good daddy who's making sure we're ready for the days ahead. As we read uh, Jeremiah 51 verse 64, it says thus were the words of Jeremiah or the words of Jeremiah in here. I didn't know if I should shout hallelujah or cry because I'm so moved by the life that he lived. I've learned so much and so grateful for his faithfulness with the word. Yeah. And I want to live just like him. Yeah. Where my heart explodes with joy is that this body <coughs> together gets to carry that message yeah. into the region of a swan. Yeah. So why don't we rise together yeah. and let's praise the Lord for his word in our life and ask him to strengthen us for the road ahead. Mighty God, thank you for this evening. Lord, we thank you for your word.